All right, good morning, church. Let's try that again. Good morning, church. Uh, Here's the fun thing about COVID. We begin to see people trickling back, and we get to see how you've changed over several months. Uh, So Piper is here. Piper had a birthday this week. Love seeing the Albers back. Very, very cool. Janet Cole is back. She got married, uh, so I don't know if any of you can top that uh, during COVID. So excited. Let's see who else I can see. Tim and Steph are here. They had a baby. Uh, right up there with, uh, uh, you know, getting married. So let's see uh, who else. The Schultzes are back from Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Uh, so super excited to have you guys back. Uh, Rachel's getting married. Uh, so yeah, just super exciting to have everybody back, starting to filter in here, trying to keep everybody at a safe distance. Uh, if this is your first time back, our prayers that you just feel a huge blessing this morning, that, that you feel welcome, that you feel part of the family. If you've started coming here over the last couple weeks, you're starting to see more and more of our church uh, join together. Everybody in the overflow, good morning. Yeah, awesome. Get here earlier. Um, So yeah, I mean, really, really exciting things that are going on. Uh, We do have a base camp kids ministry that is now in session third grade through seventh seventh grade. So if you're online and you're like, man, I wish they had something for our kids, we do. And it's at uh, safe distance. You'll be seeing a video from the Pope coming out this week that ought to be mostly appropriate. Uh, explaining how all that's going to work. So uh, great stuff happening. We do have a foster care Christmas party uh, that we've done every year where we uh, bless all the families that are part of our our Boulder County foster care system. That is still happening this year. It's changed. It's a little bit different, but we are still going to be blessing those families and those kids. So more information on that, how you can get involved uh, coming up. So just so good to see everybody. If you have your Bibles, Open them up to the book of Ephesians. If you're new to the Bible, uh, it's uh, in the second half of the Bible. uh, And there's also a table of contents in whatever Bible you're using. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be eventually. We started this series a couple weeks ago, and we've called it New Creation People. And really churchiness uh, to that phrase. And that's on purpose because when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we and trust him with our lives, we, the Bible says, we become new creations. We're no longer dead, but we're alive. And sometimes that can be a little bit foreign to us. And so we just wanted to unpack that in a much more detailed way. And so we're just walking through the book of Ephesians. If you've missed any of the previous messages, they're all online. You can catch up uh, and, and get to the point where we are today. So today we're looking at our identity in Christ and the fact that in Christ I am saved. Uh, again, kind of a, a churchy phrase that we throw around quite often. And, and some of us know exactly what that means and others go, I just know I'm not going to hell. But, but what else does it mean that I'm saved? Uh, what else does it mean in regards to salvation? And I want you to see this morning, I want to I give you my, my message right up front. What I want you to see this morning is that there are two basic categories of viewing salvation. And and the concept of salvation means this. You are in a very terrible predicament. That's that's the foundation of salvation. You find yourself in a really bad situation. 
Because you cannot save yourself. You cannot work your way out of it. You need to be saved by someone from the outside. And, and one category, we'll call it uh, works, because that's what the Apostle Paul refers to it as, works. And the other, we'll call it grace. And Paul's going to juxtapose these two different categories in, in the term of being saved or, or salvation, so if you would, have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be starting in verses 1 and going through verse uh, 7 this morning. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It's a reverence to the holiness of what we read and giving respect to it. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. There's our sermon series, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. We're going to unpack exactly what that means. It is by grace that you have been, what? Saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. What we're going to do is we're going to unpack this so that we can fully understand what does it mean when the Bible says, for it is by grace you, has been, you have been saved. You might not have ever been able to uh, explain that to someone. My hope is that after this morning, you could sit down over a lunch or a breakfast or coffee and be able to explain exactly that. These are the verses, this classical example of the Apostle Paul and how he wrote on the doctrine of salvation. In fact, this exact passage is the bedrock of truth that everything we know about being saved in salvation is built upon. Without this, we'd have a crumbling faith. This is the foundation. And while we certainly don't have everything we need to know from these few verses. For instance, we could look at Romans uh, chapters 1 through 8. We could look at 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 2, and we could get even more so. But those chapters build upon this foundation. They establish a foundation of truth that every Christian ought to seek to understand if they want to grasp the full idea and meaning behind the word grace. I love the word grace. My daughter's middle name is Grace. It has a very special meaning to me because I can stand before you today and I can be fully transparent and say without grace, I would be in a world of hurt. Are you with me? 
without the grace of God given to me, I would be in serious trouble. And so would you, even if you don't know it. So let's unpack these verses in order, and then we're going to tie it up at the end. And I want to tell you up front, there is good news today. There's good news every Sunday. But there is really good news today at the end of the message. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. The word for dead in Greek is nekaros. Say that with me. Nekaros. It's dead. It literally means a corpse or a dead body. How many of you ever seen a dead body? Kind of morbid on a Sunday morning, but nevertheless. How many of you have seen one? Yeah, they're dead. They're not kind of dead. They're fully dead. And since we know that Paul is talking about a spiritual state for us here, not a physical state, we must understand that this deadness refers to our spiritual state. We have to understand this because this gives us a context for then how we live the rest of our life. You see, the people obviously in Ephesus, they were physically alive. They went about there every day. They, they traded and they bought things and, and they had meals and they woke up and they went to bed, but they were spiritually dead. And Paul chose this comparison because it accurately describes the life of an unbeliever. Someone who is far from God. And you might be tuning in this morning online or you might be here this morning and you go, well, wait a second. I feel like I'm far from God. So what does that mean for me? Hopefully we're going to give you some guidance on that and, and to make sure that you are not spiritually dead or far from God. But it's also the impossibility of an unbeliever recognizing and, and then correcting his or her behavior. In other words, if you are spiritually dead, you can't even think, I have to correct this behavior. That's something that has to come from the outside. That's something that has to come from the Holy Spirit. That's why when we, meaning the church, not necessarily Rock Creek Church, but when we, the church, throw shade and point fingers at the rest of the world... We do so in ignorance because they can't change their behavior unless the Spirit of God prompts their heart to change the behavior, which is why we're told to what? Love. We're not told to judge. We're not told to point a finger. We're told to love and accept and embrace. Just as a corpse can't revive itself to life, neither can an unbeliever someone who's far from God, not in a relationship with Christ, that person, he or she, cannot revive their own spirit to new life, no matter how hard they try. And we see this all the time. You go, well, you used to be able to go to Barnes & Noble. I don't know if we can go to Barnes & Noble anymore, but we can go online to Barnes & Noble, and you can see the self-help section is the largest section of any bookstore. Why? Because culture is trying to fix itself. Culture is trying to fix their marriage. Culture is trying to fix their kids. Culture is trying to fix their addictions. Culture is trying to fix their mental illness. And we're working at it really, really, really hard. But we can't. We can't do it no matter how hard we might try. 
Next, the word in, in your version might say the ways or the course in the first three verses. That if we follow the ways of the world or the course of the world, it's this Greek word ion, say ion. So you're learning two brand new words today. And they're critically important for us to understand the scriptures, not just our particular passage, but other passages, because it literally means, this word literally means a lifespan, an age, or a space and time, a, a segment of time. And so Paul explains that the natural state of every woman and man in this age, meaning earth, living today in the flesh, is that we are spiritually dead. Now this is normal. This wasn't unique for Paul. It's not unique for Brian. It's not unique for the church. This was something that even the pagans fully believed in during the time of Ephesus. So Paul's addressing this. It's a normal universal thought, which is why, and we talked about this last week, Ephesus was a place very religious, very spiritual. They were pursuing hope and answers because they knew they were spiritually dead. They weren't turning to Christ, but they were looking and working for something. All of this is going to make sense now when we read this passage again. They're working to try and find a way that they might not be spiritually dead any longer. But we know from Romans and, and Genesis that the cause of humanity's dead state is Adam's sin, which we inherited at birth. Paul is explaining that the Ephesian spiritual deadness prior to their faith in Jesus Christ, was not unique. It wasn't unique to them, and it wasn't unique to any other church that he started. They simply share a condition that affects all of humanity. It's like us. COVID is, and this is actually one of the great things about COVID, and there are very few, one of the great things about COVID is it has shook the United States to go, it's not about you. The whole world is facing this. And Paul is doing the same thing. This is not just about you and Ephesus, people. The whole world has this condition. And so he takes a world, Ephesus, the epicenter of Asia Minor, that everything was flowing in and through, trade, religion, politics, entertainment, everything flowing through Ephesus. And he's saying, look, this isn't, you're not special. This is a human condition that all of us have to work through. All of us have to deal with. Every person begins their life on earth in a state of spiritual deadness and thus an eternal destination. And apart from the work of God to revive our spirit, this state will continue uninterrupted until our physical death resulting in a life of separation from the Father. This is why I started out by saying your salvation means you are in a terrible predicament. You are lost and there's no hope but one. And what we see in the world today is, is very similar to Ephesus. And the world today grasps for hope. The world today looks for identity. 
the world and culture today looks for hope and strength and security. We hope it's going to be in someone we elect. We hope it's going to be in a vaccine. We hope it's going to be in our savings account. We hope it's going to be who we marry or who we're sitting next to. We hope, we hope, we hope, we hope. And let me be clear. Spiritual deadness is a condition in which we find its source is Satan himself. We don't like to talk about Satan. It's kind of like family reunions when you've got like that weird family member that's been awful and you're like, we don't bring up Uncle Earl. We don't like to do that in church. We don't like to talk about Satan because it doesn't feel good. We don't come to church. We don't put on our clothes and, and drive to church and come in and see everybody and go, man, I just hope they talk about Satan today. We don't do that. But Satan was the first to fall and his deceptive influence contributed to the fall of man and woman, to you and I today in the garden. And today he rules the hearts, those bound in spiritual deadness. And he exerts his controlling influence through the fear of death. He's at work. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, whose death? By Jesus' death, he might break the power of him, who's him? Satan. So that by Jesus' death, he might break the power of Satan, who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In short, all unbelievers, those who are not walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ, are spiritually dead sons and daughters and slaves of the devil. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But that's the truth. All of this is building up to why it's good news. All of this is building up to why we actually need to be saved. Because this is hard. And let's identify this. Sometimes we read the scriptures and we don't like what they say. And that's okay. God is God and we're not. If you're looking for a mantra to say every day, that might be a good one. God's God, I'm not. Just, it'll help you in several areas of life. Because that includes you and I, even if we are saved. Every Christian should understand their former state to be the same as every other unbeliever. That means no one's born a Christian. You with me? No one's born following Jesus Christ. You are born into sin. This is why salvation at its premise is a horrible predicament. Every human being is a sinner dead in their transmissions from birth and all of humanity shares that same starting point as children of God's wrath according to the scriptures. Now from this opening statement Paul sets the stage to explain why and how we are saved from this state of spiritual 
deadness. It's the process, and he gives a biblical definition of grace itself. Okay, are we there? Are, are we all on the same page so far moving forward? Okay. Now, before we under, unpack that grace and being saved and why and how he did it, I want to help you understand that those of you who have trusted in your own works, this may not be for you, but it is for somebody. Either for those of you who are joining us online all around the country, or for those of you who are sitting here today, I want to help you understand that those of you who have trusted in your own works, your own pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, your own working harder, your own I can do it, putting the faith and trust in that, it is not faith that saves you. Now listen, it is not faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Chew on that for a moment. Because what we hear often in churches, you just got to have faith. Someone gets a, a horrible uh, diagnosis, you just got to have faith, you just got to pray. You go through a difficult time in your marriage, you're a difficult time with your kids, you just got to have faith. Faith doesn't save you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Because you might be trusting and putting your faith in a false religious system. You might be putting your faith and trust in a, in a wrong moral or ethical system. Uh, worse yet, you might be putting your faith in a wrong, dangerous, completely theologically incorrect spiritual system. You can feel Paul saying this to the Ephesians. Because you're not just saved. You're not saved by just having faith in someone or something. That object needs to actually be a savior who has the ability and the desire to save. That has to be where your faith goes towards. I could have faith in a chair and it's not getting me anywhere except a place to sit or stand. I could put my faith in Islam. I could put my faith in, 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 in Wicca. I could put my faith in any other kind of spiritualness pursuing good. And that is not going to save me. Jesus alone is worthy of our faith. Jesus alone is our Savior. Jesus alone is the one who has the ability and the desire to do something about our terrible predicament. And if anyone is trusting someone or something other than him or in addition to him, they're trusting in the wrong thing. And they will not experience full and complete freedom. If that's you here today, please don't hear me criticizing you. Please don't hear me beating you up. Hear me offering you true freedom. Hear me offering you the true hope. Hear me offering you the only thing that will withstand the test of time that deserves your faith. 
And if you're here today and you go, wow, it's been a while and I've really been slacking off. I might not be far from God in my salvation, but I'm awfully far in my relationship with him. There is good news today because there is still a seat at the table for you. We okay? All right, so with that said, in verse four, Paul now presents why we were rescued from this state of deadness. Because God was rich in mercy and had a great love for us. And because of that, he acted to save us. Someone asks you, well, why did God save people? Bring them right back here. Because he was rich in mercy and because he had a great love for us so that he acted to save us. It's by itself, this statement negates any consideration of personal works. Nowhere in the scriptures, at least as I have read it over and over and over, I can't find it where it says you are saved, Brian, based on what you've done and because God was rich in mercy. I don't see that anywhere. I only see God's reason for saving was entirely his own. Let's read it again. Being rich in mercy and having a great love, God determined to save us. We did not merit his mercy. We did not earn his mercy. We did not achieve salvation. And the icing on top of the cake, the Bible says, that he decided to do just that before the creation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, before he spoke it into existence, he already had this plan to save you. It's fun when someone thinks about you. When I get a text and Paul, Paul does this all the time, he'll send me just a, a one-sentence uh, one text, hey, thinking about you, praying for you today. Like, it feels good to know that someone's thinking about you. Try this on for size. God's thinking about your salvation before he formed the world. That's forethought. <laughs> that's planning that's amazing why because he's amazing he's amazing in what he does and in verse 5 Paul moves to explaining how we were rescued from our dead spiritual state notice Paul begins by reminding us that quote even when we were dead not when we were going to church, not when we were at Bible study, not when we were on a mission trip, not when we were obeying him, not when we were making the right decisions. When we were dead, God made us spiritually alive in Christ. The Bible is utterly clear on the sequence of events that lead to our salvation. And that is this. God must act first because men and women naturally do not seek him. Romans chapter 3. He has to act first. It's always been about him. It'll always be about him. Why? Because we don't have the ability. I woke up last night right around midnight. Actually, I hadn't even slept yet. It's kind of in and out. I usually can't really get into good sleep till like 2 in the morning. I have issues. And right around midnight... I had this pause and I, and I heard God just repeatedly saying, 
You have to confess, you have to confess, you have to confess, you have to confess, you have to confess. And I did what I should do as a pastor. I ignored it. I did. I shouldn't, but I did. I ignored it, but it was pressing just over and over. You must confess. You must confess. So I sat up in my bed, and I sat on the edge of my bed, and I just confessed sin. Anything I could think of. And when I was done, I'm like, ah, is there more? And there's always more. Anybody? There's always more. <laughs> It's like golden, the, the, what's the uh, all-you-can-eat place, the golden corral? Yeah, there's always more. And so I just kept confessing and confessing and confessing and confessing and confessing. Why? Because I decided to do that? No. Because God acted first. And when I finished, I went, man, God, thank you so much. That was brutal. But thank you that you prompted my heart. It's all about him. It's always been about him. God must act first on our behalf because dead corpses are not, they don't have the ability to revive themselves. You with me? I can remember my first funeral. I don't know if you can remember yours. I remember my very first funeral, my grandpa Hayes out on the farm. I remember going to the, the funeral as a little kid and really just, not understanding anything about death or funerals or anything. And I remember very vividly and distinctly looking at the coffin. It was an open casket and just going, he's not getting up. It's done. And I don't remember anything else, but I do remember the finality of death. And that's why Paul chooses to bring that into our passage because uh, a body that has deceased cannot revive themselves. You with me? And in the same way, someone who is spiritually deceased cannot revive themselves. And I'm sure if you sit here this morning or if you're watching online, you can think of those around you, and it may even be yourself today, who are spiritually deceased. And they cannot. They don't have the ability to revive themselves. The Greek verb construction of this passage, and there's a ton of them, credits God with all of the credit, all of the action used for creating the result. It's all about him. We share none of the action with God. By himself and according to his own purpose, and while we were still yet unaware of him, sinning according to the scriptures, sinning and gratifying the flesh, he made us alive in him. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel that changes a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And, and if you have someone in your life or you yourself feel you are so far from God, you are, you are so distant, there is no hope for you, I just want to say there is always hope for you. There is always hope for your family member. There is always hope for your friends who are far from Jesus Christ because he is still in the business of saving. 
And then in verse 6, Paul completes this discussion of how we were saved by adding that our new spiritual life resulted in us being raised with Christ to be seated in the heavenly places. Now, this is where I want you to think outside the box. So, put on your thinking cap, get whatever side of the brain that does creativity, lock that sucker in, and work with me on this. We are presently, hopefully this isn't a shock to you, we are on earth. We all good with that? Right now, you are physically on the planet Earth. Welcome, if you didn't know that. But nevertheless, we have been assigned a place spiritually in the heavenly realms with the Father in Christ. It's both and. And it's crazy. And it's awesome. Because we were seated there not when we die, we were seated there at the cross. We were seated, our position in the heavenly realms at the cross. Paul's point is that our salvation should not be appreciated merely as a, a present change in status or even intellectual thought. In other words, being saved isn't just a matter of agreeing with the gospel. Again, we don't see in the scriptures that says, man, the gospel can do this if you agree with it. No, the gospel doesn't need you to agree with anything. The gospel does what the gospel does, with or without you. Rather, salvation is a past change of spiritual position before God. That means it has already happened. That there's been a switch. By his work, we have been moved, spiritually speaking, not physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, we have been moved from our prior position as sons of the devil, as, as in sin with Adam, to our new state as sons of God in Christ. And why is that important nowadays? Why is this truth, why is this theology, why is this doctrine of salvation so critically important, especially in today's culture? Because we live in a culture that says right now, in my world, in my wrongdoings, in my situation, in my pain, in my frustration, in my experiences, I am at the center of the universe. I feel injustice. I am at the center of the universe and the world will listen to me. My marriage is struggling. My kids are struggling. My finances are struggling. I am at the center of the universe. This is what culture shouts from the rooftops. But we couldn't be more wrong. The Bible says that we were saved by grace and raised up. To where? To the position rightfully designated for the king himself. You see, we don't just get a seat at the table. We get Jesus' seat at the table. And it's at the right hand of the Father. And why is that important? 
The right hand of God is a reference to both a place of proximity to God himself, but it's also a position of power above all powers. We covered this last week. Jesus, the Messiah, reigns at this right hand of God today, perfectly reigning with God the Father and God the Spirit in community and power. And guess who's right next to them for those who are in Christ? You and me. Not at the kids' table. Not in the next room. Not in the table by the bathroom. Some of you that have been to big family dinner, dinners, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like the lower the totem pole, you guys are right next to the bathroom. It's not your place. Jesus gets up and says, you can have my seat. You see, in ancient times, a person with high or highest rank stood at the king's right side. That, that's what they would do. If you had the highest rank, you would stand right next to the king on his right side. Even today, a person may be called, and you've heard this before, my right-hand man or my wingman. There's something about the right that serves as the closest person to another. An example of this can be found in Genesis chapter 48, verses 13 through 14. Or Jacob blessed the child who would receive the greater blessing, what? With his right hand. The right hand of God, likewise, relates to this concept of someone being right next to God. Acknowledging both the authority and the closeness, the proximity that you have with him. And last week we learned that the position that is now afforded to us who are in Christ, is a whole reoccurring theme throughout this series, is the position rightly reserved for Christ. And we're not there someday, we're there now. This is a reality that changes your world today. You are there now. You have that position now. Why? Because that happened at the cross. It happened at the cross, and that, my friends, is the very center of the universe. If you're looking for the center of the universe, you found it this morning. It's at the cross. It's not COVID. It's not the coming election, thank God. It's not our jobs. It's not our school. It's not our marriages, our friends, our family, our finances. That's not the center of the universe. That place is in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father and that access was made possible at Calvary. For you and for me. Uh, friends, that is such good news because that means we don't have to get swallowed up by the causes and the concerns and the pressures of this world. Finally, in verse 7, and then we're going to sing and take communion. 
Paul returns to finish explaining why God saved us. And that's found in the fact that he appointed us to salvation. He appointed us to salvation so that, listen to this, so that he might display... This is mind-boggling. Remember I told you at the beginning of the service you're going to hear some good news? Here's your good news. He appointed us to salvation so that he might display the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness to us. So that he could put it on display. In effect, we're his appointed audience to receive his grace and kindness. So that in ages to come, they might glorify him because of it. That means God is not only crazy about you, but he's crazy about himself. He's crazy that you could be saved. God himself stands in awe of God himself. That you are saved and he wants to use that for future generations to go, look how incredible the majesty and the power of Jesus is that it could take someone like Joe and change him and save him. What that means is God shows you off. You ever go to a, if Tim and Steph are still here, I'm not saying you're going to do this, Tim and Steph. I think they're in the nursery so you guys can see me. I'm not saying Tim and Steph are going to do this, but you ever been around a new parent? All they want to do is show you their kid. And all the pictures look alike. But man, I just can't show you enough. (laughs) And you should. You totally should. You're showing off your kid. Jesse Henry fall asleep? How cool is that? It's what God did. He shows you off. It's so cool. He takes delight in his own grace. Can you picture God grabbing all the angels and going, can you believe Alex is saved? This is so cool. Who did the saving? God. But he stands in awe of himself to show you off. He takes delight in his own grace. That makes you amazing. Not because you are amazing, because you and I both know when you look in the mirror, you know exactly who's looking back at you. But you are amazing because of what God did in you. You're a new creation. If you're in Christ, you're no longer broken. You're a new creation. The gates of hell and death have been overcome by love and mercy. The good news just keeps coming over and over. This is who you are in Christ. This is what the book of Ephesians says is your identity. All by the means of his cross and resurrection. That is awesome. And so we remember the 26th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew tells us that as the disciples were eating, I'm going to grab one of these, as the disciples were eating, I'm sure he didn't have COVID-style communion elements, but nevertheless, 
Stand by. See, sure that looks. There we go. He took some bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it into pieces, signifying that what was about to happen to him is a broken body. If you've ever had someone close to you broken, it hurts. Max, last night, my youngest, who's nine, had a horrible kickback of something he ate. And he was just in excruciating pain. And he just was bawling his eyes out, writhing on our bed. And I was holding him. And he just kept clinging to my neck and calling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I hate seeing my kids hurt. Matthew tells us that he said that my body's about to be broken. It's going to hurt. Take this and eat it for this is my body. Then he took the cup of the wine and he gave thanks for it and he gave it to them and he said, each of you drink for it for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. In other words, to save you. What's part of your identity as a Christ follower? You are saved. You have been rescued. That is good news. That is the gospel. So as we get ready to take communion, um, take just a moment here to kind of explain what's going to happen. We have... uh, we have these prepackaged uh, wafers on the top, which you saw is super easy to get to. Uh, you got the wafers on the top and then the juice. We've got uh, them in the lobby as well so that you guys don't have to, to come into here. And what we're going to ask you to do, if, if you're going to participate in communion, you're a follower of Jesus, you are welcome at this table. The greatest representation of salvation, that your horrible predicament has been solved. Because remember, we started saying all of salvation foundation is the fact that you're in a really, you're in a bad pickle. Well, that has been solved. And the table represents the fact that you have been rescued. So we're just going to ask that you would come up as units. Um, In other words, let's just say your given row or your individual. Wait for those who come up to receive the communion, then go back to their seat. And then someone else, if you want, you can send a rep up on behalf of your entire row. You can do that as well. Uh, Partake as you see that you would like to. Please, though, if you're going to come up uh, to the table or if you're going to go to the table uh, in the back in the lobby, just slip your mask on in order to do that. We'd appreciate that. Um, I'm not going to have you do it now. Alex and I are going to sing a song, so we're going to have you do that at the second song. Is that okay? Or do you want them to do it now? Okay. So that's what we call teamwork right there. All right. So I'm going to get off, let Alex introduce this song uh, as we reflect on it. So God bless you. Enjoy this time uh, as you approach the table.